Hi, welcome to the Lifehouse Church uh, Weekly Sermon Podcast. My name is Ben Hobson, and today we're going to talk about relationships. We're going to be diving into the book of Ephesians and really taking a close look at that and about how to govern godly relationships. Um, I do want to mention a couple of things, though, before we begin, just as an introduction. Uh, First of all, I'm recording this in my house at my computer desk. I've just put my children to bed uh, so they might come out and ask questions and things like that and ask for, uh, tell me things that they've discovered in their beds to, uh, you know, excuse not going to sleep. That's fine. Um, If that happens, that happens. And I guess I just thought I'd better warn you guys that that might happen. Um, Secondly, in something that's pretty important, Lifehouse is actually going through a massive transition period at the moment. It's actually worked out well. So this is the last podcast we're going to upload for this year. Come next year, uh, the the difference in our church is that we're not going to be operating at a weekly service. So we're not actually going to have a Sunday service. Our church life is going to be much more discipleship-based. We're going to have what we call apostolic teams, and these teams are going to meet in homes and go on mission, so go to other churches, preach a message. We're also going to launch something called Lifehouse TV, and that's going to be available next year as well. So we will make sure that we keep you guys updated in podcast land about where things are going and you know how to access all this material, but we're just really keen on establishing some really firm, solid foundations in the church. Uh, I feel like we feel that the church at the moment there's a lot of people sitting in pews in the church who don't actually have a solid understanding of some basic Christian principles, some basic theology, and theology is really important because it dictates the type of Jesus you believe in. And if you've got your theology wrong, you're believing in the wrong sort of Jesus. And that's actually something that's fairly significant when you think about it, because there's only one true Jesus. So you have to make sure your theology is right. You have to make sure that you are eating the solid food and you're not just getting the baby food. And that's something Lifehouse is uh, really passionate about. So we're going to be launching that next year, which is uh, pretty exciting. We're really excited. It's still in early stages at the moment. So we're ironing out kinks. We're figuring out the best way to upload things to the internet, uh, whether that be YouTube or Vimeo or our own. Uh, So the way it functions is still something we're figuring out, but that's the adventure we're on. So we're really excited to see where God leads us next year with that. All right, so into the sermon today. Uh, I want to start off just by being clear about something. If you are struggling with any relationship in your life right now, and just just as a really simple tenant, the best bet in finding some clarity is to sow into your relationship with God. So while the other things in your other relationships might be going downhill, if you make sure that you're sowing into relationship with God, you're intimate with God, that determines every state of every other relationship you have. If you're not actually actively growing in your relationship with God and you're not allowing him to grow your character, you know, being fully submitted to the things he wants you to do and to grow and repent and all that sort of thing, 
you're going to be operating out of your flesh, and that's just not on. That's, that's that ugly stuff. And this is going to harm your other relationships. It will. I know for me that if I'm being lazy with God, uh, then the wheels fall off all the other disciplines I've put in my life. I stop really taking care of what he has given me, and I start to just ludge, you know, from one thing to the next on autopilot. If we want to have good relationships, we really need to start to look at them as though they, were, they are responsibilities God has entrusted us with. It's an honour to have a relationship with our children. It's an honour to have a relationship with our parents and our, our spouse and our families and our church families. It's an honour when you really need to start to steward these relationships well and honour them in a godly way. Then we get to leave that legacy you know, of great godly people. Isn't that what we want? Like affecting generations that come after us. So if all you're after from this podcast is a quick fix, that's it. And it's not a quick fix, but that's pretty much all you need to know. Go and just start seeking God. Seek God, push into intimacy with him, push into your prayer life. If there's relationships that are going downhill, make sure you have your relationship with Christ solid and just press in there. In all our interactions, even with those who anger and hurt us, we need to remember that Christ died for every single one of them. Even if they don't accept that he did, he did. They are precious in the eyes of our Father, even if, even if we struggle to see them that way. When we deal with people, we need to keep this in the back of our minds too. I know, I know that's easier said than done. This is where we need to grow our character through that disciplined choice. Choose the harder path, the narrow one. We need to actually have to, we try to have our father's perspective on the people that we meet. How does he view that person who cut you off in traffic? You know, you have to ask that sort of question. What sort of plans does he have in store for them? We need to look past, you know, the charade, the pose, you know, the thing that annoys us, the fleshly behavior. And we need to think about what is their true heart? Like, why are they hiding their true heart? What has happened in their life to have caused them to hide beneath this fear or aggression or laziness, you know, those things that can frustrate us? We need to look at, look at them in an honest way, look at them in a godly way. Who does God say they are? What is really true about them? For a long time, the church has really, unfortunately, really twisted scripture Certain men have been the dominating force over the earth. And, you know, I've known men. I've known men personally who have taken scripture, and you know the, you know the passage, wives submit to your husbands, and they've used that sort of like this emotional battering ram to force their wives into submission. They've dominated their wives. They've bullied their wives. And there's a lot of men who live this way and that their wife needs to be subservient to them. That is biblical, you know. And it's really harmed the image of God on this earth. If God has put his image in us as men, then we really haven't been doing a great job of being his representations here on earth. What sort of image of God the Father are we giving when we are forcing our wives to follow our commands? Is that what God does? God doesn't do that. He doesn't force people to love him. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, he says, follow me. He says, you know, uh, sell all your possessions and follow me. 
When the young people looked around, they thought, oh, I've actually got some really cool stuff. Jesus didn't chase them, did he? He didn't force them to do things. He didn't bully them into it. That's not how love works. So I think we need some clarity here. And I think now in our society, we've actually swung too far in the opposite direction. Men are women and women are men. We are too matriarchal. It's not to say women have a lot of power. You know, there's still that glass ceiling. That's, I understand that. I get that. And that's not cool. But what we have now is a very feminized society. Men are not encouraged to be men because for so long, many men have been really horrible. God made us male and female in his image. We need to get into the scripture and just really read what God has said to say about marriage, about our relationships with our children. But to start with, I actually want to point out something quickly about slavery in the Bible, because I hear it talked about sometimes. You hear this thrown around in you know atheist forums about how the Bible endorses slavery. And since we're looking at Ephesians, I thought, why not just take a moment to have a look at this? Because I think if you unpack it, it's pretty interesting. So Ephesians 6, 5 to 6, in the NIV, it says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So, you know, those internet warriors, they say the Bible endorses slavery with passages like this one, right? And it sort of, see, sort of seems to. Slaves, be good slaves. That's what it's saying, right? There's a couple of things I want to I unpack with this. So here's a few things. Number one, first of all, it speaks to the ideal of the slave. Just like the rest of scripture, we are not just handed some rule sheet to follow or else we'll be in trouble. No, it's about submission to God fully of the heart. That slaves were addressed at all given the context of the time in which the Bible was written, is surprising because it's actually putting them on the same playing field as the rest of that letter, as the rest of that scripture. Slaves are equal to their masters. They are both addressed equally. It's pretty interesting. Number two, it actually gives slaves far more rights than they had at the time. If you go on in Ephesians, you actually read this, Ephesians 6, 9, and masters treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. How good is that, right? Treat your slaves in the same manner in which they treat you. Again, this is what the majority of today is about. If we actually study scripture and read things in context, we see what God is actually saying, that we are all his adopted children, slave and master alike. This was revolutionary back in those days because slaves were property. So it actually elevates the slave status to equality with their masters. Number three, if you read scripture properly from the beginning, we're all created beings of God. Jesus died for all of us. So the next time an internet warrior claims the Bible endorses slavery, you can be a little bit prepared. Though arguing on the internet rarely does any good. But sometimes, you know, sometimes a friend might ask sincerely, you know, I've always heard that the Bible endorses slavery. Have you got something to say? And that's when you can have that opening and actually say something of worth. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So I think we need to make sure we're prepared to give that answer. 
All right, let's move on. I want to talk about marriage. I'm going to talk about it from two angles. The angles are simple. We're going to talk about it from the perspective of the husband and the perspective of the wife. Now, while there are some similarities in function, there are some marked biblical differences between the two roles. My aim is to simply align you with what the underlying point of your function is. So we're not going to much detail about how to achieve that function because there's a bunch of books on that subject. There's a great one by uh, John and Stacey Eldridge called Love and War and the Bible. But, you know, you guys know that there's a lot of different books on this topic. But we're going to get to the, to the heart of the matter. So, first of all, as a husband, we are called and we are honoured with a great privilege. We need to demonstrate to our wife the kind of sacrificial, self-giving love that Christ has for the church. This is huge, profound, very complicated and very, very simple. Listen to this. Ephesians 5.25, this is in the Amplified. Husbands, love your wives. Seek the highest good for her and surround her with a caring, unselfish love. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, when I was talking earlier about the men who use scripture to dominate their wives, they forget about the final part that gave himself up for her. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice and laid down his life for us. And this is the exact framework we need to model when we are properly, biblically loving our wives. If you really lay hold of this scripture, it's going to profoundly change your marriage. There need be no demands made by, on your wife by you at all because you are sacrificing your entire life for her sake. Entire life, 100%. It rubs a bit, doesn't it? As humans live in this modern world, we're kind of conditioned to make our worlds revolve around us, about our needs, about what we need to do to function, we're tired, etc. Everything we get bombarded with, you know, all the advertising and products, they're all geared to make us feel a bit special, you know, a bit important. I've got the iPhone 7, I'm kind of a cool dude and... I need it, you know, to feel cool and feel good about myself. So to hear that, if we are to probably love our wives, we need to actually give up our lives for them. This, this, this hurts us a little bit. It's, it goes against the grain of our modern society. But it's this kind of sacrifice Christ made for you on the cross, and it's this we're told in the Bible to model for our wives. This daughter of Christ, whom he loves dearly, has been entrusted to you, men. So you best treat her right. It's an honour to be given such a task and we need to do our best to honour it in return. And it's a daily, ongoing choice. I can think of so many instances where I fail this task. It's a daily decision. I just pray I'm getting better at it. You know, I know for my wife, it's actually sometimes the most simple things that mean the most to her. Uh, we just bought a house this house that I'm currently sitting in. And I've been working hard on fixing up a few things around the home. Nothing major, but just, you know, taking a bit of pleasure and looking after our home. You know, the kitchen cupboard fell off and I bought the hinges and I put it in and then I found out I had the wrong hinges. So I had to go back to the hardware store. And anyway, uh, and Lena has actually said to me more than once how loved this makes her feel. She feels loved when I do this for her. 
Uh, sometimes I've, you know, she's been working on a sermon or a podcast. I just take the kids out so she can have a bit of breathing space, even for an hour. It's just those small sacrificial moments that mean a lot to our wives. Now, we are also told to nourish and cherish our wives. This speaks to discipling our wives, I think. Have a read of the next bit of Ephesians here, Ephesians 5, 28 to 29 in the Amplified. Even so, husbands should and are morally obligated to love their own wives as being, in a sense, their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body, but instead he nourishes and protects and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. The picture here is of nourishing and cherishing. What you need to picture is a nest of baby birds, you know, like a real storm. And daddy bird is sitting there with his wing up, keeping them warm, sheltering them. So that's how we nourish our wives, by being attentive to her. You know something? Oh gosh, this bothers me. Something I hear so often in the world is this. You heard this phrase? The old ball and chain. The missus. You know, I hear you refer to your wife like that, and I can instantly tell what sort of marriage you have. Marriage of dismissiveness. Or, you know, you just got to let the wife talk for a bit, and then she'll soon stop eventually. Guys, garbage. Garbage job, nurturing our wives there. May not matter to you, but it matters to her. She wouldn't be talking about it if it didn't matter to her. We need to sacrifice our own desires and sit there and watch television. You know, that's what we want to do sometimes. And instead, mute, pause, turn to her and actually be concerned with the things she's giving. We need to hold her as priority over every other thing. Be quick with words of encouragement. Gosh, I really appreciate that you did that. I just, I noticed times and times and just so many times in my marriage where before I say something nice, I say something critical. You know, uh, you know, my wife will do all the washing or something like that, and she'll do all the clothes in the house and the clothes for my two boys as well. And then I get home and I say, oh, did you wash this one thing for me? Why didn't you wash this one thing for me? We're very quick to be judgmental of each other, and it's, and it's, it's, it's a choice to be generous and encouraging of each other. Derek Prince says, giving praise to your wife is one of the best investments you can ever make. And I really agree. Seeing a woman flourish beneath the leadership of a good husband, a husband who actually gives up his life for her, is beautiful. The husband is also the head of his home. He's the captain on the bridge, Kirk in the chair. He needs to not be a demanding manipulative butthead about it though a captain who listens to his second mate not just dismisses her opinion as unimportant i'm just going to keep going this way but ultimately it's the man's responsibility for the steering of the ship it's the husband's responsibility to ensure the direction of the sheep is correct and on course he is in charge of the sheep being your children and your wife and your ministry as well He's in charge of the spiritual growth of his family, and he will be accountable to God for his family's spiritual walk. So duty and honour husbands really need to take seriously. In Australia, we have this saying, she'll be right, mate. She is right, don't worry, she'll be fine. But no, not in this instance. 
Men need to intentionally and purposefully shepherd their families into proper directions. If they don't, if they give up their duties out of, you know, laziness or selfishness or passivity or aggression or sexual sin, then they're going to answer to God. This is how you can tell a lot about a man by the state of his family. Obviously, each person is responsible for their own choices, but can you really stand before God knowing you did all you could? Because God's going to see through the excuses. He's going to see through the things you throw up to convince yourself that you should sit down on the couch for a while instead of talking to your wife. He's going to see through that. So do you really know that you did all you could? There's a story my wife tells of me. So she's actually spoken a few times uh, about this subject, about relationships, about marriage. And there's this instance in our marriage early on where uh, very early in our marriage, like the first six months, we we're getting into an argument. And we're, I can't even remember what the argument was about. But she got very heated up. She said, oh, whatever. And she walked out and she, she slammed the door in my face and shut me out. And so I think that we're taught as men to just, oh, don't go in there. That's a bit dangerous. You know, just let it cool down, you know, or to walk away sort of thinking, well, how dare she do that? And not actually say anything about it, but build up resentment about your wife. But, and I can't remember making the conscious decision, but I remember I, I went straight up to that door and I slammed it open. I said, we do not do that in this family. That is not what we do. And at the time, you know, my wife didn't take that that well at the time. But again, this is a story that she tells about a time where I've stood up for her despite her. Like I've actually steered the ship in a good direction, even though she was taking it off course a little bit, I actually pulled her back on course. And I wasn't mean about it. I wasn't a bully about it, but I was very firm. And I said, no, this is not what we're doing. This is not what we do in our house. We talk to each other. We don't shut each other out. So it set the whole tone for our marriage. And is it always that easy? You know, is it always just that quick turnaround? No, no, it's definitely not. It takes sustained effort. Sometimes it takes decades. But just because it takes a while doesn't mean that it doesn't need doing. You still need to do it. Uh, it's a tricky thing to talk about that, the dichotomy between a husband and a wife. Husbands need to be the final decision makers, but they also have to pay attention and serve their wives. Husbands can't manipulate their wives into decisions. They can't force their way, but they do need to steer the ship. If she has the wheel and she's guiding the family into a storm, the man has to take the wheel from her and steer in a better direction. This is going to be painful sometimes and, you know, cause confrontation and ugly battles, you know, things that you might just want to sweep under the rug a little bit, but that ship really needs to sail right. And the more you let those little things slide, the more off course you're going to get. My wife is very practical. I'm less practical. I'm a bit of a dreamer. So I'm generally the one who has the big ideas. And then my wife is the one who figures out how to implement them. 
there have been times we've disagreed. One of the things we disagree on the most is how to discipline our children, which I'll get to a little bit later. We both want what's best, but we differ in how to get there. It can be hard to have these conversations, but we need to be strong and have them and cultivate a tone of kindness and approachability in our marriages. I know my wife knows that she can tell me anything and she can talk to me about anything she wants. And I feel the same way. I can tell her all the deepest, darkest secrets of my journey with God. She's the one I trust the most out of anyone on this planet. And you need to have that deep, close relationship. You need to build it. You need to build that trust. Wives, on the other hand, have the privilege and honor of demonstrating to the world and to their husbands the love that the church has for Christ. So it's actually the opposite of the husband who demonstrates Christ's love for the church. Wives show the church's love for Christ. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as a service to the Lord. The husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives should be subject to their husbands in everything, respecting both their position as protector and their responsibility to God as head of the house. The word subject used in this passage is primarily a military term, to rank under. In no way does this concept imply that a wife is inferior to her husband. Remember, in the image of God, we were created. Male and female, he created them. We're equal in worth to God. But what this is speaking of is biblically honoring your husband, respecting the responsibility of the position the husband is in. This is not a duty for wives. It's actually a special privilege. And it must be a difficult one to uphold at times, especially when your husband is not fulfilling his duties or is making decisions that you don't agree with. You really do need to be earnest in prayer first about choosing your husband. Gosh, choose your marriage partner wisely. Those of you listening who don't actually have a partner yet, make sure you choose well. And then be earnest in seeking whether or not that person is following Christ. Both husbands and wives need to submit their wills to Christ. And you need to ensure your husband is following Christ. But a husband needs his wife's support if he is to fulfill his position as the head of the home. If he is battled at every turn, then that ship might sail right despite you. But I'm sure that's not what you'd want for your family. Consider how God created the body. The head can't turn by itself. It depends on the body to hold it up. Ephesians 5:33 B in the Amplified says this, and the wife must see to it that she respects and delights in her husband, that she notices him and prefers him and treats him with loving concern, treasuring him, honoring him and holding him dear. Some versions have it that a wife must hold her husband in reverence. Reverence consists of love and esteem, which produces a care to please and of fear which awakens a caution lest just offence be given. And now that word there, it's actually a bit irksome. It kind of flies in the face of feminism, doesn't it? You know, I'm a feminist if that means I believe women are of equal worth to men, and I do, but women are not men and men are not women. Women are women, and they're all the awesome for it. So if that part where it says to fear your husband, that's tricky to wrap your head around but you have to remember we're also asked to fear god a godly fear it's not a, it's not in terror 
that women must serve their husbands, but fear of not fulfilling their godly calling. So wives should not nag their husbands to get their own way or try to change his mind after he's made his decision by belittling him and talking down about him to other women. Now, you know, there's going to be moments wherein a wife might seek counsel regarding a husband, of course. But wives and husbands should not talk down about their partners in a public setting. And I hear it, I'm sure all of you listening now have heard it too. People in the world, they, they really can be quite mean towards their wife or towards their husband. My husband won't get off his butt and do this thing, you know. But we're, to, we're, we're called to honour our partners and to encourage them, talk up about them. Remember, we are Christ's representation to the world. How we love our partners publicly should be honouring to Christ. So lastly, I want to talk a bit about children. My wife and I were just talking about this the other day. We need to love our children well. My gosh, it's important. They are our legacy. They are entrusted to us. We are the first people in their worlds who they trust, and one day they will, whether they mean to or not. One day they'll take this image that you give them. Hopefully it's of a responsible, loving parent, and they sort of subconsciously look at God with that image. You know, this is actually something that stunts a lot of people and stops them from accepting Christ into their hearts and to accepting God the Father because they couldn't trust their own father. They think subconsciously they've made a decision. I can't trust fathers. Therefore, I can't trust God. It's actually emotionally stunting and it's a deep responsibility of ours to present a godly image to our children. We have an epic responsibility to train our children up in the way they should go. Children are a blessing from the Lord. We need to view them and speak of them that way. How easy it is it to complain about our children to others? You know, how naughty they're being, or time-consuming, or I just didn't get any sleep last night, little so-and-so has been up so-and-so times. What do you think that does to the spirits of our children if all we do is complain about them? We must speak of them as God sees them, which is so precious. Proverbs 22.6 says this, Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. So we need to train them up to love the Lord. We all know by now that more is caught than taught. So we need to show them how to love Christ by loving Christ ourselves. If my wife and I get into an argument, or like I was mentioning earlier, maybe I'm just being critical or something like that, I always make sure, or I try to always make sure, I apologize to her in front of my sons, and then I apologize to them as well, because they need to see me honor her with my words and actions, and they need to see me repent to her, repent to God when I do something wrong and when I don't honor her. They need to see how a husband loves his wife because they're going to do the exact same thing in their own marriages. They're little sponges, our kids. They just absorb everything from us and they don't have the maturity yet to tell if the behavior we're giving them is something they should or should not be copying. So we need to make sure we're acting in a godly way. We need to be disciples of Christ in everything we do. We need to model that for our kids, how we speak and act, how we repent and pray, 
how you read the Bible, how you read it all, everything. We're going to get into a tough subject here. It's really quickly we're going to touch on this discipline. It's tricky. How much discipline is too much? When should we smack or spank for those of you in America? Should we do it? What harms, you know, does it harm a kid to say, I'm going to put you in your room now for being naughty. You have a timeout. Like, does that make a, them a fear of abandonment? If we give them a smack, do they fear uh, violence? How do we sow in encouragement to stop bad behavior? Is there such a thing as the terrible twos? Okay, yeah. You go on the internet and you can find people angrily being dismissive of every disciplinary technique you can name. It's never right. Nothing's ever right. Nothing's ever good. But what we need to focus on, something, I'm not going to get into all that. I'm not going to get into the specifics. I want to just get into a principle. The principle of discipline is to give our children safe boundaries. Okay, that is what discipline is. We give them these boundaries within which to operate because kids thrive in that. That is comfort to them, that they know they are safe between here and here. And that is what life is like. We are also teaching them authority and how to respond to it. I used to take my son, Charlie, to soccer class. Now, he is only just turned four. So I used to take him when he was two and three. And, you know, soccer's fun. We get a lot out of kicking the ball around and playing little games. But the thing that I found the most important was that he was learning to sit there and follow the directions of the coaches. And so a lot of other parents there were on their phones, you know, just completely disengaged with what the kids were doing. And all the other kids were mucking around. But I was very firm with my son. And I said, no, listen to what coach is saying. Make sure you do it because I'm teaching them authority. I'm teaching them how to respond to authority because God is the ultimate authority. If they don't see it, if they don't understand it, if they don't get taught it, it doesn't come naturally. Naturally, the flesh wants to rebel. So if you don't teach a kid how to be responsive to authority, how can we expect them to obey God ultimately? This is actually reflected in Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Proverbs nineteen eighteen: Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Hope versus death. You know, this is not something to just cast aside as unimportant, like it's hope and death. Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish them with the rod, they will not die. Punish them with the rod and save them from death. Save them from death is pretty strong. That's strong, but it's true because we're talking about a spiritual death. Death eternal. Without God. Without God's response, without our children responding to God's authority, they're not going to submit to him. They're not going to submit to Christ and allow him into their hearts. It's so important. Um, my kids, there's, I mean, I, I hate smacking. I hate it. But it's something that's important, I feel, and something that I do because I feel it's an important part of discipline. Um, 
my sons don't know things. And so if they're out on the driveway, they'll just wander into the road. And so if they do something dangerous like that and they've had a warning about it, they get a smack because I need to discipline them to understand that they are not to walk out on the road. I'm saving them from a physical death. And that's just a little bit of a picture for the overall spiritual picture of that. Because they need to understand the boundaries within which they can operate. Obviously, God gives us direction. He gives us boundaries that we can stick within. And if we conform to those boundaries, we live a life with Christ, intimacy with Christ. We live a full life. We operate in our calling and we we die and we go to the judgment seat of Christ and we're able to hold our head up high and say we ran the race well. But without that, without submittance, it's not going to go well. We need to make sure that we are teaching our kids to submit by submitting ourselves and by disciplining them well. So in conclusion, I'm going to conclude now. I know, I know we've just barely scratched the surface of all this, but I really hope that you've understood the principles here, what the principles are. And I guess the overarching principle is of submission. We need to submit ourselves to God and therefore we need to serve our wives, our husbands, our children. That is our duty. That is what we need to do. Above all things, love God. Be earnest in seeking him in prayer. If you have questions about relationships and things like that, if things aren't going well, pray. Talk to him. Listen to his voice. It's as simple and as difficult as that. All right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate the 38 minutes that you've given me. Um, I really do... We will keep you guys updated about what's happening in the coming year with Lifehouse TV and the podcasts, where that's all coming and what's happening. Uh, but beyond that, have a Merry Christmas. Hope you have a safe time with your families and that it's a blessed time 